the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Hey, good morning. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave, who is off on a little R&R this weekend, hasn't made it back into town yet. And so I'm filling in for him today, and we've got a full morning of guests that are going to be calling in to uh, just discuss this past legislative session. On May 1st, we will sign a die. just simply means that we'll gavel out, and we will be done for this General Assembly's uh, session. And today I'm going to have guests such as John Payton, who's going to join us in just a minute, talk about a tire bill that uh, he ran and a couple other bills that he's got. Uh, Senator Justin Boyd, uh, Pro Tem Bart Hester will be coming on, Senator Misty Irvin, uh, Rep. Senator Josh Bryant. Also, uh, we're scheduled to hear from the Treasurer's Office. We're going to have uh, Lori Trogdon with the Bankers Association talking about the stability of the banks in the state and with the recent bank collapse, uh, is your money safe? And if not, what do we need to do and what are some of the warning signs? We're going to have the director of RDOT, Lori Tudor, on who's going to talk about a piece of legislation we got passed as far as using cameras in construction zones and other things related to some of the construction projects going on around the state. We'll have Cody Highland, who is the director of the Republican Party of Arkansas. We'll have the state police on between 10 and 10.30 to talk about a transition of some responsibilities from the fire marshal over to Adam. And we'll finish out the morning with A.J. from over at Adam getting an update about some of the tornado damage and the reports and updates on it, as well as a few other things that will be of interest to you. But this morning, we're going to start off with uh, Senator John Payton. And, John, thank you for joining me on the Dave Ellswick Show this morning. Well, good morning, Senator Hammer, and certainly appreciate the opportunity to be on. Hey, uh, just so that people know where you represent, uh, because you're a senator now, was former rep. We served in the House together. Give people the geographical location where you serve and what's your Senate district number. Sure. It's Senate District 22, and basically if you drew a line from Heber Springs to Walnut Ridge and uh, north and south, it would be Pleasant Plains to Hardy. Uh, so, So it's a large section of north central arkansas and uh encompasses all of izzard and independence and sharp counties and part of cleveland and fulton and lawrence county and uh i said that wrong it's it's the eastern part of izzard county but anyway all uh, right parts of or all of six counties you got a you got a big spread up there compared to what you used to have as a house member you've spread your wings as a senator well, geographically, my house district was about as large. It just had a lot of national forest in it. <laughs> <laughs> so when you were, when we lost you among the trees, literally, we lost you among the trees. But exactly, I'm from the hills, and I like it up here. That's beautiful up there. I've been up to your place up there, and you got a beautiful place up there. And I'm sure with the beautiful Thank morning you. we're having, it's got to be a little piece of heaven up there today. It is a beautiful Monday morning, sitting here at the farm, and almost had a frost last night. But I think. There's a few shady areas that got a frost, but 
mostly we we dodged it. So. All right. Speaking of dodging it, let's talk about some of your legislation. I got the uh, screen pulled up. You had a pretty good list of uh, bills that you ran. Let's talk about a couple of them with the time that we got this morning. First of okay. all, let's talk about the uh, about the tire bills that you ran. And as you talk about that, lay the groundwork for the history on the tire bills. And people may not think that this matters, but if you go get a set of tires or you've got a deer lease or you've got some private property and you drive up one morning and there's a bunch of tires dumped up out on the road or dumped on your deer lease or you go to get your tires remounted or buy new tires, this one affects your world personally. So talk about the well, background. Well, obviously in the world of garbage and refuse, you know, tires do not degrade well. Uh, I don't know how many years it would take, but more than a lifetime for them to break down. And uh, so, you know, you don't want to burn a couple million tires a year that that's a lot of pollution going into the air so that they've created a challenge for years and i think it was back in the 90s when the state of arkansas decided uh in order to prevent the illegal dumping that, that if we collected for the uh, processing of the tires on the front end when they're sold new then the disposal would be at no charge and uh that way people would not be incentivized to to dump them or take them home and store them and and uh, of course they become mosquito beds if if you if they're sitting around in fence rows and such so i've always thought that was a pretty good solution and we implemented and start as a state long before i was political and uh we started collecting the disposal fee on new tires the problem is over the years with inflation uh that fee didn't get increased enough to cover the cost of disposal. And uh, so a few years ago, the program started running low on cash. It does cost money to process these tires. <laughs> and uh, so exploring ways to add money to the programs, somebody suggested that they collect a tax on used tires. And I fought against that six years ago very, you know, very vehemently. As you'll remember, you were in the house with us at that time, I think. And, uh, you know, I fought against that. Well, sometimes you got to be careful what you fight against because if that solution doesn't work, uh, they're going to ask you to come up with your own suggestion. So uh, they did pass the used tire tax. They call it a rim fee. And over the years, it has not produced enough money to make the program solvent. Um, so this, this session, it, it fell on me to offer up my solution. And uh, my solution had a lot to do with building efficiencies into the program by reorganizing the districts and creating some advisory boards that contain county judges and, and mayors uh, within four different tire districts in Arkansas. And uh, that portion of the, of the solution that I proposed did get passed. So there's going to be a reorganization of the management so to speak of the of the tire processing that should help find efficiencies in in the process also uh department of finance and administration needed more authority to collect from the tire retailers the retailers have the authority to collect from their customers on the on the uh new tire fee and the rim removal fee but uh dfna didn't have the authority to to go into the business and make sure that that money was remitted to the state properly uh, as they do with sales tax. So that's another thing that we did with the bill to uh, try to, we discovered there was about $4 million laying out there 
that the businesses had collected from their customers but had not remitted to the state of Arkansas that could have went into the program. So there were a lot of uh, people working on this with me, and and uh, we came up with a compromise. Hopefully the solution is yet to come if those boards can find efficient ways to deal with the problem so we don't have to add more money to the program. The reality is that it takes money to process the tires. What's the break point or what's the fair, reasonable amount that you think, based on your research, that a customer is willing to pay? Because um, at some point or another, that tire is what's generating the problem. So the cost of you know taking care of the demand of the tire uh, collection uh, is going to be attached to every tire that's sold, either as a, as a new tire that goes on or as a used tire that's bought at Dale's Tire Shop down on Ash or whatever the case may be, it's going to be attached to that tire. So what what was the fair amount that you determined per tire that should be collected in order to have enough money in that fund to take care of it? Well, and so what complicates that equation is how broad the base is that you collect the fee on. So right now we're collecting a fee on new tires when they're sold, but not every new tire because, you know, I've been in the car business all my life and I owned a Chevrolet store and a Dodge store. And, and uh, you know, every time somebody buys a new vehicle, they've bought four or five new tires or sometimes six or seven, depending on what kind of vehicle it is. And uh, we're not collecting any fees on those. So I had proposed that we broaden the base of what we collect the fee on, which would keep us from having to raise the fee beyond $3. Uh, I think that if we collect $3 on every new tire instead of just a portion of them, and that's that would be on trucks and trailers and passenger cars, uh, that that we would have enough money in the program. The uh, used tire fee, I think, works against us, the rim removal fee. Because the best way to recycle a tire is to take it off of this vehicle and put it on the next one and wear it out. So many times people are swapping uh, and putting a new set of tires on. When the set that they're taking off, there may be two or three of those tires that still have a lot of life left in them. And uh, we need to encourage those used tires to be used again and worn out. And up here in the hills, there's a lot of people that just need a cheap tire. (laughs) to get back and forth to work until the next paycheck. You know, if it'll hold air, they can they can make it till Friday. Um, and people, some people just don't seem to understand that. But, uh, you know, I've got friends and neighbors and family up here. I still consider myself a constituent. And uh, I don't think discouraging the use of those used tires is a, is a good way. And, and taxes discourage things. So, um you know, I think it's a unique situation where we need to remove the fee on the used tires and broaden the base on collecting the fee on the new tires. Okay. And, I, and my proposal would have added about $3 million to the program uh, per year. Uh, I think, you know, after the discussions with the governor and her staff, that uh, if the program runs short of money, that that they understand that uh, probably going to find some money from general revenue or somewhere to bolster it but to privatize this program you know people would have to pull up at whatever dump or processing facility 
or at the tire dealer, and and they would be subject to whatever the processor's wanting to charge and the tire dealer wants to mark it up, it could cost $10 a tire to $3 a tire. And if you had tractor tires, uh, what was being revealed in our research, like if you took a farm tractor tire, it cost over $100. Semi-tires would cost 40 or 50 $60 a piece. Uh, you would have brought a cap to this. Yeah, you would have brought a cap to it is what your what your plan would have done. Well, and uh, so here's the thing. Those Wait. tires cost a lot to process, but we only have a couple of processors in the state of Arkansas that can handle the job, and they do a great job doing it. But uh, if we privatize the program, they would have a monopoly. Uh, and we know monopolies are not known for uh, for bargain hunting. You know, it's not going to be the cheap way to do it when somebody has a monopoly. Uh so right now, the way it's done with the state managing the disposal, uh, we have bargaining power with processors to try to keep that system as efficient as possible. Okay. John, i got to take a break. Hang on one second. got Justin Boyd coming in right behind you, but I want to ask you one quick question when we come back from the break, if you can hang on. Absolutely. This is the Dave Ellsworth Show. I'm State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for him here on 101.1 FM. The answer, we come back, we'll finish up with Senator John Payton, and we're going to blend into Senator Justin Boyd to talk about a piece of his legislation. We'll be back after the break. Got a long list of people lined up as our guests today, and right now we're with Senator John Payton. Uh, John, let me give you just a couple of minutes because I need to get on to Senator Justin Boyd, but let me ask you about a okay. bill that you ran regarding catalytic converters. It's a real problem here in the state. People stealing catalytic converters cost thousands of dollars to get them replaced, not to mention rendering your car useless while you don't have one. So uh, for a couple minutes, talk about that bill and the effects of it. Well, uh, thank you. And there again, you know, being in the car business, I've seen a lot of this. Uh, it's it's frustrating when, when you have uh, people that are willing to destroy many more, you know, the dollars worth of damage done to to get a catalytic converter off a vehicle that they can go hawk for 50 bucks is ridiculous. Uh, but anyway, talking to law enforcement, uh, found out that they just really didn't have enough tools when they stopped somebody on the side of the road and there's two or three catalytic converters laying in the bed of a pickup truck. Uh, they don't have any proof that they were stolen and there's very little they can do. So our bill requires the industry that deals with catalytic converters to put a number on those converters when they're removed from a vehicle, track the converters, uh, have them entered into a system. And that way, if we stop somebody on the side of the road, if law enforcement does, and they're hauling two or three catalytic converters at 2 o'clock in the morning in the bed of a pickup truck, and those converters are not marked and in the system, then the law enforcement has a reason to detain them, to question them, to uh, make a record, uh, charge them with possession of them, which would just be a misdemeanor. But then at 10 o'clock the next day when the local church calls and says, hey, we had catalytic converters cut off the buses last night, uh, law enforcement will have a record of who they stopped at 2 o'clock in the morning with catalytic converters in the bed of the truck. (laughs) And hopefully we can put two and two together. Of course, the other way to go after it is, is, you know, to try to shut down the the uh, purchasers that are buying these stolen catalytic converters, and and that has a lot to do with uh, opportunity to mix them in to look with legitimate catalytic converters that come off of vehicles because they're worn out uh, and full of of sediments. Uh, so therefore, 
having these converters marked with a permanent number when they come off a vehicle and then tracking that back to the vehicle, I think it gives us the tools to try to enforce the laws and, and to uh, investigate and track down the, the thieves and the purchasers because it's a ridiculous uh, crime yep. to just, you know. It, it is. Appreciate your work on it. It's like a chess match. We move, they move, and eventually yeah. we'll get them into a checkmate situation. It's kind of like copper theft. You know, we worked on that for a long time, trying to get that to where it is, and it's always a moving project, uh, a, a moving target, uh, but every little move helps, so I appreciate you doing that. All right, I'm going to have to let you go because I've got Senator Justin Boyd, and so, uh, Senator Payton, thanks for joining me here on the Dave Ellswick Show. Hope you have a great rest of the day. Enjoy the beautiful. Thank you for having me on. You bet. Great job until Justin Boyd. I will. All right, Justin. Thank you, man. Hey, Justin, good to have you on the uh, Dave Ellswick show this morning. Thanks for taking time out to join me this morning. Hey, Senator Hammer. It's great to be here. All right, let's talk about some of the legislation that you were involved with. Uh, One of them, just uh, what about the charitable raffle bill and what's that? uh, Well, first of all, real quick, where you represent, uh, what's your district number? Take that for just a second so everybody knows where you're from. Yes, uh, State Senator Justin Boyd. I represent Fort Smith, more or less, a little area of Barling, um, State Senate, Senate District 27. Okay. All right. So the um, – sorry, I got distracted there for a second. So the other bills that you uh, – uh, what, what does the charitable raffle bill do? Okay, so uh, Mr. Ellswick was very nice, had me on whenever this was being presented, so I just wanted to give an update to his audience to let them know it, it passed. So what it does is it clarifies, you know, hey, if, if I want if you know, my kid is having a charitable raffle at school and I, you know, put that out on Facebook, it clarifies that that is legal in Arkansas. And so I just wanted to let everybody know that, you know, it, it is now clear that if you, you know, put something on Facebook, that lets people know, hey, I'm an unpaid volunteer, but I'm going to help my, my kids' school raise some money or, you know, a veterans organization raise some money with a, a charitable raffle in the state of Arkansas, that that is, is okay because it was not clear at all before this. So thanks for the opportunity to give an update on that. Sure. So go forth and raffle is the message out of that. All right. On the Chinese drone bill, uh, that's House Bill 1653, if I got my notes right. What's that about? It's now Act uh, 525, I believe it is. Yes. So when uh, President Trump was in office, he issued an executive order on uh, Chinese-made drones or foreign-made drones, drones made by our adversaries. And so specifically, this bill outlines Chinese or Russian Federation-made made drones. And so a significant portion of the market of drones, and when I'm talking about a drone, I'm referring to an unmanned aerial system, a UAS is for short. And so 70, depending on which market, whether you're talking about industrial or, or just consumer use, it's 70 to 90% of the market has been dominated by a specific Chinese company, DJI, uh, which has been designated by the Department of Defense as a foreign military company. Um, and so what this does is an extension of President Trump's uh, executive order that he issued January 18, 2021, and basically would bring it in with state law so that we can't use state public dollars. So our you know, state troopers, our county officials, they can't use public dollars to purchase drones from China 
or the Russian Federation. And so what that does is it helps protect our infrastructure. It helps ensure that we don't get hacked. It basically sends a strong signal to American, the American drone industry and our allies that, hey, we need to buy American. We need to be America first in this because these drones have become more and more integrated into what we do in emergency management, um, just ensuring our infrastructure is in place. And so this, this bill, again, just solidifies at a state level what uh, President Trump's executive order from January 18th, 2021 did. All right. And leading out of that into uh, the spaceport, you ran a bill regarding the spaceport. Talk about that for a second. Yes. Yeah, so, you know, our previous governor, uh, Governor Hutchinson, had convened a transportation council, future transportation, our future mobility council. And so one of the recommendations that actually came out of there is that we need to do a feasibility study on a spaceport. And some people might look at that and go, why would we need that? Why would we want that? Well, you know, I kind of think back in the 1920s, a lot of people were sitting back going, do we really need an airport? You know, this this seems all kind of futuristic. But honestly, there are billionaires with private dollars who want to, you know, invest in space travel. It's, it's coming. The money's there. Uh, but the first thing you have to do is go, is it even feasible in Arkansas? Or where is it feasible in Arkansas? And so uh, this is kind of an extension from that transportation or that mobile, future mobility council. And so there were actually two, two pieces of legislation. One was an appropriation request. So that would allow uh, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission if, if funds become available to uh, fund that feasibility study. And then two, Representative Pilkington and I had a, a House bill that we ran together that identified the specific points that should be in a feasibility study uh, or report and where it would go. So pretty excited about that. We'll see. It's, it's really kind of in the, the hands of our governor and um, the Arkansas Economic Development Commission, whether we move forward with that. There are, you know, as I understand it, there are some opportunities from, for federal state matching grants. So that, that is pretty exciting. Okay. All right. Well, I'm going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. That's Justin Boyd, state senator. I appreciate you being on. Also, he is my uh, seatmate in the Capitol, so we sit beside each other, and I appreciate him very much. We're going to take a break here at the bottom of the hour. My guest up next will be Pro Tem uh, Bart Hester coming out at 730, followed by Missy Irving. We're going to talk about women in sports. She ran a bill last time around, and uh, we've got it a hot wire, hot topic now at the national level, so we're going to have her on at 745. Come back to the Dave Ellswick Show after the break. It's just it's just pressure packed. I don't, you know, it could be in, it could be in June or July, and the last two weeks are going to be the last two weeks. It doesn't matter, but it does seem like things uh, got off to a quicker start. It does seem like things and senators and representatives were aware that we are trying to get this done as quick and as efficiently as possible. Uh, I, I know that the Learns Act was a big bill. I know that you know the uh, Safety Act was a big bill. Uh, but yet it doesn't, you know, now that we've got a little time behind us, it doesn't seem like there was a lot of hidden stuff in either of those two big bills that we're just now finding out about. Your your perception, you agree, disagree, or what do you think? I think you're absolutely right. The, 
the goal was to be as transparent as possible. Um, you know, the governor on most of these issues talked about them every single campaign stop for more than a year. Talked about them every press conference we had. We've been talking about as members the, the big points. Um, we didn't sneak anything in anywhere. Uh, we, we were very transparent about it. Uh, and I think really the, the proof is going to be in the pudding as we continue to write the rules on these things and um, and really see see real effective change throughout the state of Arkansas. You know, Senator Hammer, you spent a lot of time working on um, um, election reform. You may be talking about that some today, but I think it's uh, hard to understate how important um, the work that members like you have done that's put Arkansas, I don't know if we're first, second, or third, but in election integrity in the state. We don't have to deal with a lot of concerns that other states have because of that work. Well, and that's the, uh, you know, I think for the most part, I'm, I'm going to give some kudos to the new members that came in, the, the new senators. And by new, I mean, they didn't have any legislative experience at all, maybe back at their local level in a quorum court or, a, you know, as a city alderman. But it's a different creature when you get to the legislature. And we had some real savvy uh, new members that came on and they got a, they weren't drinking out of the fire hose. I think they were holding the fire hose and uh, they got caught up to speed real quick. And they I think they realized that you know when the gavel came down and we were in for business people people got their stuff going and they got it going quick and um i think that's one reason why the last two weeks while it was filled with pressure the normal pressure that you have in the last two weeks it wasn't like anybody wasn't getting to get their legislation heard or presented i will give you credit for you and you know representative shepherd i I do think that y'all did the best you could as far as making sure that if there's a bill that was worth hearing that it got a fair hearing through the process. Any thoughts on that? Well, thank you. And that, that was absolutely the goal. You know, it's, it's interesting. In Arkansas, we're different than a lot of other states. If you file a bill, it, it's going to get heard. It, and our rules say it will be heard. And so, so that's different. In some other states, the majority leader or the president of the Senate control the schedule each day on what's going to be heard and heard on the floor. That's just not how it is in Arkansas. And so everything that gets filed will get heard. And uh, that's why when we get towards the end of session, um, it's always going to be a push the last few weeks because it doesn't matter if it's those two weeks or two weeks later or two weeks later, members are going to continue to file bills. It's always going to be a push. But that's, uh, you know, that's how the Constitution of Arkansas was set up. Let me ask you if you can hang on through the break because you have some legislation while you were busy being pro tem. Uh, you also got some legislation packed that are now uh, passed that are now acts. If you can hang on through the break, I'd like to ask you about a couple of those if you can. All right. All right. This is uh, the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave this morning. I want you to come back after the break and continue listening here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Nine o'clock, just in time for you to get ready while you uh, get ready to go to church. And you can hear it every Saturday and Sunday at eight o'clock here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Or you can uh, pick it up on your favorite podcast, whichever one you like. We get it posted up there. Go to my website, thekimhammershow.com, thekimhammershow.com. You can pick it up there as well and be kept up to date with current articles that you may find of interest. If you want to check out any of the legislation that the senators are talking about this morning on the Dave Ellswick Show, you can go to state. Dot AR dot US and just key in their name and it'll pull up their respective legislation that they ran. So currently I have with me uh, State Senator um, Bart Hester, who is also the pro tem of the Senate. And the pro tem of the Senate, just for those people that don't know, Bart, is what? Other than, other than herding cats, what's your job? 
Well, I think that the job primarily is to make sure that uh, each member is being heard and treated fairly. Um, it's, it's different than over there in the House where uh, you kind of have to have a little iron fist sometimes uh, to, to push things in a direction. Over in the Senate, we have 35 members that think for themselves, act for themselves. And, and so my, my main job is to make sure that each one uh, have the ability and are being treated fairly. All right, very good. Let me give you a minute because I've got now uh, Senator Missy Irvin who has joined us on the line. We might have a little uh, um, a three-way conversation here. But, Bart, before we bring Missy into the conversation, uh, pick out a couple of your key pieces of legislation that you actually ran while being pro-TEM that you want to speak about real quickly. Well, you know, um, I, t- I really like to sometimes focus on stuff that's that, that really it, – it's um, – not as widespread as some other legislation that gets passed. Something that passed this time, I really like to work on foster care issues. Um, and this one just said that basically if you are a um, if you're a relative of somebody that's going, going into care, so I'm a grandparent, for example, but I don't have the financial ability to care for a child, uh, maybe my grandchild that's going into care, right now if you don't have that ability, you can't um, receive uh, a foster care payment. So it goes to someone outside of your family. And I think anybody listening to this thinks, well, that doesn't seem right. And so we fix that. We said right now if you're a grandma and your grandchild's going into care and you don't currently have the funds to to uh, care for that child, that you as the grandparent or relative can receive payment. Um, we've had that differently in the past because of concerns that relatives would just uh, you know take money. But uh, I think the reality is this is very important that children can stay within a family or a family unit, if at all possible, and we're trying to continue to make that work. Is that Senate Bill 346 that's now Act 363 to promote permanency and strengthen kinship placement for children in foster care? That's right. Okay. Yeah. Now, go ahead. I'll tell you, that was pushed by by DHS, Department of Children and Families, for the state of Arkansas. They wanted that. I was familiar with that issue. I was glad to be able to help with it. All right. Very good. Uh, One other one you want to talk about or comes to mind? Well, uh, another simple one that, you know, the the only director of any agency that didn't report directly to the governor was our Department of Corrections. Um, And that 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 agency director answered to the department or to the uh, committee. And uh, we changed that. We said, no, uh, in the state of Arkansas, if you're you're an agency director, you're going to answer directly to the governor. I think that makes sense. People put uh, Governor Sanders in charge. They want her and all of her agency directors to answer to her so she can control outcomes and not always just the uh, the board. All right. And I think that's Senate Bill 194, now Act 185, to amend the law concerning Secretary of Department of Commerce. All right. Let's uh, let's bring Senator Missy Irvin into the conversation. Bart, if you want to hang on, feel free to. But let me uh, start off with uh, Senator Missy Irvin. And, uh, Missy, give them your geographical location that you represent, your district number, first of all. Well, good morning to both of you. It's great to talk with you both and hope you're doing well and your families are doing well. So great to hear from you. Um, I, let me just say, first and foremost, Senator Hester, uh, I will echo what he said. He did a fabulous job as being our president pro tem this session, and I really felt like the Senate did great work together as a collective team. And uh, he 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 was a great coach, and I I felt like we were a great team, and uh, felt like our 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 committees worked well with each other. So I I really applaud his leadership because I thought it was a lot of fun this session, and we were able to really get great things accomplished together. Uh, all pulling in the same direction. So it was great. Um, so thank you for that. I, I represent North Central Arkansas, basically. 
uh, Stone County, Searcy County, uh, parts of Newton County, Van Buren County, Cleburne County, and Faulkner County. So um, just kind of a big swath of north central Arkansas, and I live in Mountain View in Stone County. So I've uh, been in the Senate since 2010, and my district has radically changed, but I've basically represented all of north central Arkansas pretty much at one time. So it's great to be with you guys. The uh, the one reason I wanted to get you on, uh, Missy and Bart, you feel free to weigh in on this, was because, if I remember right, the last session you ran a piece of legislation dealing uh, with women's sports and about uh, transgender men playing in uh, playing in the collegiate, uh, maybe even the high school. And now we've got this thing going on in the Congress where the House has passed a bill prohibiting it. And as a female athlete, former female athlete, if I remember right, I just want to give you a chance to weigh in and hear your thoughts and uh, just give you an open mic moment to talk about it from your previous legislation and now with what's going on at the congressional level. Yeah, thank you so much. So that was Senate Bill 354, uh, which then became um, Act. Um, it was in, it, it was passed and, and engrossed um, on March 9th of 2021. And um, basically it was the Fairness in Women's Sports Bill. And uh, what we have found very consistent, uh, we quoted legislation uh, findings in the legislative findings that according to the United States Supreme Court in the United States versus Virginia in 1996, in that case that was in the Supreme Court, they found, quote, inherent differences between men and women and that these differences, quote, remain cause for celebration but not for denigration of the members of either sex or for artificial constraints on an individual's opportunity. Um, when you look at the inherent differences of, of biological men and biological women, clearly there are chromosomal differences, there are hormonal differences, and there are physiological differences. Um, and those inherent differences were relied upon in that 1996 United States Supreme Court case. So. We feel very strongly that this piece of legislation will stand the test of any type of judicial um, judicial uh, process or judicial attack um, from the left, and um, and so I think you know it's incredibly important for me as a woman, for my daughters as women, that their opportunities be protected. It makes me absolutely you know just livid to see every headline when my bill passed when these other bills passed and and i will say arkansas was one of the first states to pass this legislation i worked with alliance for defending freedom and we we crafted this legislation and then this legislation my my bill 354 it was used as kind of the gold standard across the nation and I worked with legislators in 2021, and, and I continue to do so, in helping them pass legislation and helping them craft their legislation. And so we worked very hard on this bill in particular just because we knew it was going to become the gold standard that would be passed in all these other states. And so what, what made me livid, though, was when it passed and when it became an act and, and Governor Hutchinson did sign the bill, um, that it... Uh, was attacked by saying, you know, every headline was, it was an attack on transgenders. No, no, 
this was an act to protect women's sports, to protect these little girls for their opportunities to play sports, to earn scholarships to college, to be on the same level playing field as a man. And so, you know, it was a very clear uh, piece of legislation, and uh, we believe that the courts have recognized this um, over and over again. Um, in, in similar, uh, and if you read the bill, you'll see those those different court uh, decisions are, are referenced. Um, but it, it's very clear that, that there are very differences. There are strict differences between biological men and women, and, and it's just not the right thing to do. Title IX was a, a federal action that protected women's opportunities in sports. Uh, Title IX has been uh, decimated by first the Obama administration, and now here comes the Biden administration, and and transformed into something that it never was. It was there to protect women, to protect women, not to open up this Pandora's box of transgenderism issues. Um, and so that's that's really you know, where we are, and I was really proud to see the House of Representatives at the U.S. level pass legislation and speak out and speak boldly on this issue. i got to take a break. Can you hang on for a second through the break, and we'll yes, pick up? Okay, this is Kim Hammer hosting for the Dave Ellswick Show today. Hope you come back and uh, continue the conversation with Missy Irvin and about legislation regarding transgender men uh, playing in women's sports, and we'll be back after the break. Aaron, give the traffic report. I just want to publicly declare I'm not responsible for any of them. I've been here since about 645, so I cannot take responsibility. However, in driving into Little Rock daily, uh, I do find that there are people that I want to go back and reinstate the ability to get your driver's license based on how you drive because there are some people out there I'm not sure they need to be on the road driving the way they drive. So, anyway, just remember all those folks. Avoid all those traffic jams if you can. And thanks for being here on the Dave Ellswick Show this morning. And we're going to continue a conversation with Senator Missy Irvin, who was on uh, the last segment. And, Missy, thank you for holding on over to this segment. We're talking about uh, uh, transgender men playing in women's sports. I was watching a little news clip about a uh, volleyball player uh, who had a transgender man playing on the opposite team, and uh, she got the ball spiked, which, hey, that's that's volleyball. But when you got a male on the other side spiking a ball into the face of a female, uh, this young lady is uh, still recovering, and that happened last year. Uh, sometimes we get blamed as Republicans, just to be quite honest, about being mean toward transgenders, uh, which I do not think is a valid argument, but yet we, you know, get the shots. But Talk about the inequity that occurs whenever you have someone who is a uh, male gender, uh, tr- you know, presenting themselves as a female, playing in a female sport, and the disadvantage that that creates. And how is that unfair toward the female who is playing in the female sports? And do you think there are some females out there that don't really care? They just say, hey, give us your best man. We'll take him out. It doesn't matter. You've got some history playing uh, sports as a female, so I'd like to hear it from from that perspective. So there are studies. Uh, there are studies in the Journal of Clinical Endocrinology and Metabolism uh, in 2019. There was a study: muscle strength, size, and composition following 12 months of gender affirming treatment in transgender individuals. 
Uh, during that study, it found that the benefits that natural testosterone provide to a male athlete are not diminished through the use of puberty blockers or cross-sex hormones. Um, a re this recent study on the impact of treatments regarding puberty, puberty blockers and cross-sex hormones found that even after 12 months of hormonal therapy, a man who identifies as a woman and is taking cross-sex hormones had an absolute advantage over female athletes and will still likely have performance benefits over women. Um, so even if, you know, they say, well, they're going to be using puberty blockers and these cross-sex hormones, and it's still not going to counter the absolute advantage that they have over female athletes because of their natural testosterone. That is biological. That is in their DNA. That cannot be changed. We are not God. We do not need to play God. God is God. God created man. God created woman. There are distinct differences between the two. Uh, there will always be significant uh, differences when you come to a head-to-head -head competition in that it's unequivocal. And that begins in puberty um, because a man's biological man's body develops differently than a biological woman's body. Why? Because God created that way for us to have families. Women have a uterus. We give birth. Men do not. Because we are women who give birth, our bodies are prepared and built for that. We are built for, for having children. Men are built for uh, working the world, working the land. I mean, I, I think it, for me, it's very biblical, Kim. It's very biblical as to what God created and why he created us the way he created us. You know, he, he created us to tend to his creation. Well, in order to tend to the creation, we have different skill sets. Men do than women do. And, uh, and our bodies are built differently because we have different purposes that God intended for us. And that's not a bad thing. That's a great thing. I am incredibly grateful to have the opportunity to have children and to um, and be strong enough and be tough enough to deliver a baby four times um, and, and to take care of that baby in that way. And so I think it, it really is important to understand the way that we are built and that we are built differently. We have physiological differences that are not similar. And because of those physiological advantages, uh, boys are stronger in muscle mass. They have testosterone and higher levels of testosterone, uh, which gives a competitive advantage. Um, you know, and so I think there are definite sports that are very, very, uh, I think, one-sided. Um, and, and because of that strength and because, and you've seen that in that young lady who was injured dramatically because the, the, the biological male, and I'm not going to refer to them anymore as, as what they want to be referred to. I'm going to say biological male. A biological male spiked the ball and hit her in the face and in the head and gave her a severe concussion and a neck injury and that she's still recovering from. And, and 
that's inappropriate. It's inappropriate. It's dangerous, and it's not safe for women. All right, I got about one minute before I got to take a break, and then I'm going to get on Senator Josh Bryant. Anything you want to say in final comments along that subject line? What I want to say is that this is an attack on women. I am tired of men attacking women. That is clearly what this is. It is an attack on women. Our little girls need to have the ability to dream and then achieve their dreams and not be stolen away from them by a biological male. And biological men are trying to erase women. And I'm tired of it. I'm sick of it. It's not going to happen in the state of Arkansas, and it should not happen in the United States of America. And this is not a discussion between uh, men and women. This is a discussion between good and evil at this point. We know the differences. There are clear differences. That should not be a point of disagreement between two political parties. It should not. It is very clear. There are men. There are women. Stay in your lane. Get out of our ways of being able to provide opportunities for these young ladies. Get out of our way from trying to erase us from history. Quit taking our records. Leah Thomas, go. Be who you are. Be free to be whoever you are or whoever you choose to be. But quit trying to erase women. Quit trying to take away the ability for us to have our own records and achieve our records and achieve our dreams and to achieve our accomplishments. That is wrong. And so that's my final word. And, And what I would like to say to people that are listening, get on board, get vocal, get loud, and make sure people understand the clear differences and what's really happening here with this whole debate. Senator, Miss Irvin, I appreciate you being on the Dave Ellswick Show. i got to take a break here. I'll say one comment on this. God made it very simple, very clear. Man in his sinfulness has confused the issue, so let's put the responsibility where it belongs, and that's on sin. All right, we're going to take a break here. Thank you. We're going to take a break here, and then when we come back, we're going to have Senator Josh Bryan on. We're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave today. Be back after the break. Uh, area that you serve as a senator and also what your district number is yes sir uh, joshua bryant district 32 i'm up in the far northwest corner uh, benton county and i serve the eastern part of benton county and then the north northeastern side of washington county so i'm up here in the in the far reaches of the northwest corner of the state all right very good this past session you had a pretty active session uh, you got an award, actually, by your fellow senators and pro tem, uh, uh, Bart Hester. We won't talk about that award, but you got an award that was really good. Uh, you ran quite a bit of legislation as I look at the site. And, again, you can go up to www.arcleg.state.ar.us. You can type in any legislator's name, senator or House member, either one. It'll pull up a list of all the uh, legislation that they introduced. If it did make it all the way through the process and became an act, You'll have an act number that will be associated with that. I want to give you a chance to just talk about a couple of pieces of legislation that you ran. Uh, One in particular was about a piece of legislation involving the legalization of recreational marijuana. I just wanted to give you an open mic for people to hear what was some of the ideas or what was some of the intent behind running that piece of legislation. Uh, Sure. That that was a a constitutional amendment piece. It was really, really in my mind, a discussion piece. Um, if, if your viewers or listeners remember, 
in November, we, we did shoot down and um, an initiated or a constitutional amendment for recreational marijuana that was presented by the industry. And uh, just a little context, you know, our, our neighbor to our west is uh, not only are they medical like we are, but they are, I kind of I kind of consider them the wild, wild west. Of medical marijuana for $2,500 you can get a license from the state of Oklahoma as a resident um, and grow grow what you want sell what you want to the to the uh, approved sites um, that of course you got to have a medical card but it, you, from my understanding is if you don't have a medical card you can still walk in there and, and get what you need um, and then to the north of us at the same time was a, a recreational marijuana amendment on their ballots and so you have those three players, and for Northwest Arkansas, neighbor to our north, Missouri, neighbor to our west, Oklahoma, uh, it's it is pouring in across our borders in the in the state of Arkansas, at least up in, in my area. So, I thought if 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 initiated, or I'm sorry, if Amendment Four were to pass, what's the number one thing I wish we could have done different? And my thought was uh, having legislative control, because one of the specific things of of Amendment Four was that the legislature had no control. The elected officials had no control. Once it was in our Constitution, we were stuck with it, and we had to live by it. And so that, that was one of my reasons, more of a, of a discussion point, to see what does that look like if the, if the legislature of Arkansas were to put that on the ballot but still were, maintain full control over recreational marijuana in the state of Arkansas. Because in the end, it's it's going to be on our ballot again in 2024, whether it's from the General Assembly or whether from industry or whether from the, the authors of the medical amendment that passed. Again, failed in 2012, and then in 2014 became the first state in the Bible Belt to pass uh, medical marijuana. It was just to see, basically, what does that look like for the state, and is it something that we wish we would have done? Because I, I tell you, Ken, I've got family that lives up in Missouri, and... That, you know, they, they kind of didn't know what that was going to look like if it, if it passed, and it did pass, and then it went into effect, I believe, in February. Um, first month, they sold $80 million worth of recreational marijuana. I think last month it exceeded $125 million. And the first thing that, that my family said to me is, I, I wish our state assembly would have acted and put some controls on this constitutional amendment in Missouri. So. That's kind of my, my talking points on that. The reaction that you've gotten just from, uh, you know, not necessarily from senators because we've had our conversations about that, but the reaction that you've gotten maybe from folks back home when they heard that you were uh, running this piece of legislation, what was the reaction? Mixed, strong one way or the other, or just what was the temperature check? <laughs> I, I think for me locally, uh, I'm, I'm in, a, in a very conservative area, but I think there's enough enough libertarian leanings and then with with i'm gonna say my reputation as, as being a fairly conservative guy i wasn't met with a lot of hostility i was met with a lot of raised eyebrows and a lot of tell me what you're thinking and once i explained what what i was thinking which was hey would you rather have um your neighbor your constitutional uh, authority dictate to you you know what we can and can't should or should not do with recreational marijuana or would you rather have the potential for the industry to to lead the narrative? And I think once they once 
you know, some you're just never going to convince. And I wasn't trying to convince them to vote for either amendment. What I was trying to do is say, hey, what, uh, if you could Monday morning quarterback this thing, what would you wish for when you wake up tomorrow? And, and, and most of them say, well, if we've got to have it, I'd rather have it where we can control it. Um, so it, it was good conversation, and it wasn't anything that I was I was going to push and push and push because even, even myself, I, you know, I, I don't smoke it. I think it, it doesn't lead to other problems, absolutely. But I tell you, when you've got – if you were to go up to Neosha, Missouri, just to our north and ask the, the um, dispensaries up there who their biggest customer are, they say 90% of the people that buy from them have Arkansas plates. And so – Basically, all of our all of our revenue is you know money is being shipped across the border to our north, and it's and it's bringing the same problems back here to at least in Benton County and Washington County. Um, so, I'm sure if you look across the entire northern section of our state, uh, from Jonesboro all the way over here, that people that are going to use it are going to go north and get it and bring it back into our state. So, I think the conversations tended to lit, uh, end on a positive note not something we all want but if it's something that we're going to get uh what's the right answer uh, uh, this is just what came to my mind so it may be right wrong ugly you know just uh listeners just show me a little grace but i wonder what would happen if those states that are selling recreational marijuana were to make it illegal to sell to out-of-state residents of course that'd be like bootlegging back in the you know back in the 20s and the 30s during prohibition they they're going to, if they want it, they're going to figure out a way to get it, legal or not. They're going to figure it out. But in those states that are border states, they don't have it in their laws, evidently, that they can't sell to anybody out of state. Is that is that true, or do you know? That, that is true. You know, technically, Oklahoma, you're supposed to have a, a medical card, just like you would in Arkansas. But uh, if you don't want to get that medical card and you go over to o- Oklahoma, my understanding is there's, there are on every corner, and they're all vying for that market and if there's cash in hand they're going to sell it to you and do you know on those um other states oklahoma missouri you know where where it's being sold as recreational marijuana uh is it required then that they have to have a medical marijuana card in order to purchase it over there and can they get that medical marijuana card in oklahoma and in missouri or do you know uh missouri it's, it's full recreational uh you can go up there and buy up to three ounces any day and then, you know, which is, <laughs> I, I, and I don't know what that looks like uh, in terms of if it was in my hands, but I, somebody tells me it's a lot. As far as Oklahoma, you can go get a card there. Um, it's required. It's not recreational. Oklahoma did did shoot down theirs uh, recreational. Mm-hmm. Because, again, probably because it was too broad, too industry-driven, uh, but also uh, the users over there for medical or recreational really don't see a limitation on getting it well i'm not a proponent of recreational marijuana anybody's listened to me very long either on the kim ham show or this show as i fill in for dave i'm not a proponent for recreational marijuana i do concede uh that there are those individuals that have benefited from marijuana for medical purposes i am afraid that and i think time will show uh that the medical marijuana card is being abused uh, that there are you know situations where they're being issued uh, to individuals that do not have a legitimate medical uh, need for the marijuana. Time will tell about that. Uh, but as far as the effects of recreational marijuana, uh, I, I'm not a supporter of that, and I would resist that 
you know, in a hard way. I do want to say that I commend you because the same thoughts you had, I had. I just wasn't as willing to go out on the limb as you were willing to go out on the limb as far as, you know, putting it out there for the subject of discussion. Is this something that we need to take into control ourselves, dictate the terms of instead of having the terms dictated to us? And that's what I would interpret what you were trying to do is if it's going to happen, then let us control the terms of how it's going to happen. Yes, sir. And it, it will for my being, you know, it's people say if you don't know how your how your bill is going to be uh, seen, just go ahead and file it and see what suits show up to the table. <laughs> so I, I, I've been able to, to have good, good lengthy conversations uh, with different sides of the industry and um, just different proponents of recreational marijuana. And as far as I can tell, they have started the, the signature process and there will be uh, – an amendment on our 2024 ballot for this subject, and I just I hope the your your listeners and people across the state really really take into consideration what is going to be asked for. Okay, I got to take a break at the bottom of the hour. I'm going to close out and just say this, uh, and that is, if you're going to sign a petition, make sure you know what you're signing, and if you don't know what you're signing, don't sign the thing. It's better to do that. And we even passed legislation on that. Maybe talk about that before it's done as far as people buying and selling and destroying those signatures. Best thing to do is just don't sign it. All right, State Representative Josh Bryant, thanks for joining me here on the Dave Ellswick Show. we got to take a break. I look forward to seeing you on May 1st at Sunny Die. We're going to take a break here on the Dave Ellswick Show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave today. Come back after the break. It's replayed on Sunday mornings at 8 o'clock, which you should be getting ready for church during that time, so you can be to church on time. It is a replay from Saturday's show, but you can hear every Saturday here from 8 to 11, 8 until 9, and uh, that's heard here on 101.1 FM, The Answer, or you can go up to your favorite blog platform and be able to hear it uh, played there, and or you can go up to my website, which is thekimhammershow.com, thekimhammershow.com, and you can uh, not only hear it there, but you can also pick up articles we put up there that might be of interest to you if you're a strong conservative and you just want to keep up with what's going on in the world. For this next segment, which I'm filling in for Dave, and he's gone on a little bit of personal R&R time, I've got Lori Trogdon, who is the president of the and CEO of the Bankers Association of Arkansas. And, Lori, thank you for taking time out to be on the Dave Ellswick Show with me this morning. Thank you for having me. I appreciate being here. Um, what I wanted to have you on to talk about, and if you, I know you've been on the line listening. I, was, I would like to see your reaction while I go on the uh, advertising that talks about uh, the banks being uh, rated at, you know, a deed nationwide. I just wanted to talk to you about with the collapse of the bank in California, the collapse of the bank in New York, uh, how are we affected here in the state of Arkansas, and should people be worried about the strength and the uh, the future of the banks here in the state of Arkansas? Let's just start off with that. Sure. Um, well, I just want to, the very first thing I want to say is that um, there is not a systemic banking crisis. Um, I really cannot stress that enough, that absolutely there is not a systemic banking crisis in this country. And I realize, um, you know, when things like this happen, it makes for some pretty salacious headlines and um, often helps others uh, promote their products that they are trying to sell. But um, there is not a systemic crisis, and it's being, and a lot of news stories and things like that, it's being a little mislabeled. These um, isolated incidents. There has not been any kind of bank closure. Um, it's been almost three years since there was any kind of bank closure and difference in, you know, and I'll, I'll mainly speak about SBB, Silicon Valley Bank, because it was the bigger bank. 
Um, but, you know, and it, it, part of it, just in the name itself, Silicon Valley Bank, their business model uh, was very different than our banks here in Arkansas. That their, their entire business model, where they had most of their portfolio, which was a, a mistake, uh, it was focused on the technology sector. Uh, their core constituency was um, technology, startups, venture capital, crypto, things like that. Uh, they had way too much concentration risk in that area, and so that was a big red flag there. Um, number two was poor management. That bank was just not well managed. Um, I'll say that, you know, they didn't have a chief risk officer for almost a year, and, and everything I just talked about, having that portfolio where it was, is all poorly managed risk, and that that um, position is very important to a bank, and why the regulatory agencies did nothing about that, I don't know. I think we'll know more once they've completed their investigation, the uh, federal government's investigating that, and, and we'll know more about what was happening with that. Um, and then something really unique that happened uh, with this that we've not seen before, social media actually um, impacted this bank. So what, what was really going on was that um, – there was a steep rise in interest rates, which we're all very well aware of, um, but that rise in interest rates depressed the value of Silicon Valley Bank's treasuries and some of its other safe assets. And so when deposit outflows started happening, that they didn't have enough cash. They didn't have enough liquidity because of that. Uh, and it, affect, it affected their solvency. Um, but part of what caused that bank run was social media. Uh, somebody took to social media and said, you know, uh, this this, ha this bank is, is uh, failing, get your money out, and that immediately caused a bank run. And as you know, it's like a game of telephone. Uh, it starts as, well, this is what's happening, and then the second time it's repeated, it changes a little, and then it changes a little, and then at the end it's the bank, oh, my gosh, the bank is failing, run, hurry, get your money out. Uh, if that hadn't have happened, uh, maybe their liquidity levels would have stayed, you know, up high enough that they wouldn't have had to close the bank. Uh, but the federal government did exactly what it was supposed to do. Um, you know, all the reforms after 2008, uh, it, they worked the way they were supposed to work. The government stepped in. They did exactly what they were supposed to do. Um, you know, they, they stood that bank back up. People had access to their cash um, and could continue, you know, their business, their day-to-day -day business. Uh, and so they just they did what they were supposed to do that that the system in this instance, the way that it was designed uh, to work, the system did work. And I know and I'm, I'm trying to um, I know you want to talk about some other subjects. So I'm trying not to spend too much time on any one thing. I know we talked extensively about this uh, in your show on Saturday. But um, I'll also just say talk briefly about the FDIC because I know you're interested in that. You know, uh, customers deposits are protected by insurance, the FDIC insurance. Um, up to $250,000. Uh, in their 88-year history, uh, no one has ever lost a penny of an insured deposit. No one, not one penny. Um, so, and, and the FDIC is completely funded by the banking industry. They do, every bank pays risk-based premiums, so every bank does not pay the same. The, they are risk-based premiums. They pay those every quarter to support that fund. Um, at June of 2022, the, the fund stood at an all-time high of $124.5 billion. And then on top of that, the FDIC has a $100 billion line of credit uh, with the U.S. Treasury. And by law, uh, if the banking industry used that line of credit, it has to be repaid by the banking industry. So as you can see, they are really well, uh, really, really well uh, 
I'm sorry, really, really well capitalized um, in this industry. And more than 99% of banks are highly capitalized and far above uh, most of the stringent regulatory standards. So, you know, these two banks, they were just, um, they were anomalies. And, you know, here in Arkansas alone, our banks have assets of over $150 billion. So uh, the Arkansas economy is strong. The banks of Arkansas are very strong. And they don't, they just don't operate under this sort of um, banking model that these that the New York Bank and the California Bank operated under. Um, I believe the New York Bank was uh, crypto heavy. And so you don't see a lot of that here. That's just not our economy here in Arkansas. You really don't see those sorts of risk factors here. Okay. Tell you what, I've got to take a break, but I'm going to give you the question I want to take up when we come back. And the question sure. that I want to take up when we come back is, how would the average citizen who has their money in a bank know if their bank is solvent or if their bank is about to go under because it seems like a lot of people got caught by surprise that had money Mm -hmm. in those banks uh, in California and New York. So how would a person in Arkansas know that their bank is strong and not going to be the next one on the list? We'll take that question up when we come back after the break. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave Ellswick on the Dave Ellswick Show here on 101.1 FM, The Answer. Come on back. We'll get the answer to that question when we come back. Hi, this is Kim Hammer, State Senator, filling in for Dave this morning. I'll find a little R&R. Uh, Aaron, I was looking at the map as you were giving that. It reminded me of a bad NASCAR accident on the track. The way It's that bad. Was. Like, I haven't, you know, I said, I said it just a second ago. I started doing traffic for the answer back in January. I haven't seen it this bad in, I don't think, ever. Yeah, a lot of Monday morning red right there. Hey, I just want to make a comment before we get back to uh, Lori Trogdon, who is the CEO and president of the Bankers Association. We're talking about the strength of the banks here in Arkansas in comparison to the two bank failures in California and New York and talking about the strength and, you know, some of the things around the banking industry. Uh, But as was mentioned by Senator uh, Bart Hester, pro tem of the Senate, one of the things that we accomplished uh, during this past session was we ran a election integrity package consistent consisted of uh, 25 bills. We utilized what was referred to as the Heritage Report, took a look at it, and saw where we were short. And we were not coming up to be number one. We were at number four originally, and then some other states came in behind us, took some of our legislation. As a result of that, they became better than us. Not that we did anything wrong, but we dropped down to number six. We took that report, and we said, okay, what do we got to do to earn that number one ranking or get closer to that number one ranking? And we passed a package of about 24 bills uh, that had direct impact to what that report said. Uh, one of those things was the conversation around the subject of paper ballots versus the machines, and uh, we ran a Senate bill called 250. caught a lot of attention, a lot of lightning rods, but it was highly favored as far as being a bill that would help improve our election integrity. I said all I'd say this. Uh, recently, over the weekend, I saw where Mike Lindell, CEO of MyPillow, the founder of the U.S. betting company, MyPillow, has been ordered to pay $5 million to an expert who proved his 2020 presidential election data was wrong. Uh, the latest report is that he has said that he's not going to pay that, but, you know, time will play out. All I'm saying about that subject matter is this, that before you make a decision and you go all in either way, whether it's for uh, things that I would advocate as far as strengthening the machines and just making sure that they are uh, fully accountable or whether you go the paper ballot, do your research, do your homework, and make sure that those that you get in behind are taking you in the right direction. Because if you've got to pay out $5 million because you were so strong in one position and now you've been proven wrong, 
you might want to take that into consideration of any position that you take on that matter. Time will tell, and the evidence will come forward to prove out which one is right. We just want good election integrity in the state of Arkansas, and we want people to be able to know that if they vote, that their vote counts for who they intended it to count for. And at the end of the day, if you win, you win fair and square. If you lose, you lose fair and square. And with that, we can all know that we can go to the ballot box and that we can vote knowing that our vote has the highest surrounding of election integrity possible, and that gives us the confidence that we want moving forward, and we can dispel and dismiss some of the myths that are out there. All that being, that was a free editorial by Kim Hammer. All right, now, Lori Trogdon, CEO and president of the Bankers Association. Uh, I want to come back, and I gave you a question. How does a person in the state of Arkansas know that their bank is strong, given the fact that as you listen to the stories out of California and out of New York, the banks that collapsed, I got the appearance or I got the impression that those people didn't know what was coming until they showed up at the bank. Uh, They saw it on social media, so there was a run on the bank. How does an average citizen know? Sure. Um, Well, I think that's a a two-pronged approach there. Um, It's not all just on the citizen, but I'll say for for that specific instance, um, banks are required to do what's called a call report. Those are done every six months. They are submitted to the SDIC for review, and the state bank department, um, who regulates Arkansas chartered state banks, um, also takes a look at that. But those are public. You can pull anybody's call report at any time. But, you know, you don't have to do that. You can, and it's all out there, What everything they are investing in, um, where they're putting their loan dollars, things like that, where the, what their risk uh, is. You can, you can go out and see all of that there. Those, they're quite thick. But um, even easier than that, just call your bank. Uh, just call your bank and ask them, especially if they're a publicly traded bank. They have to put out those reports in addition um, for all their shareholders and, and stockholders and things like that. But just call the bank, and I can tell you that I know uh, I talked to several CEOs right after uh, everything happened. It was on a Friday. They were all working on a Saturday and a Sunday. They were calling their customers. They were telling them, here's what our bank does. Here's how, If you have more than $250,000 in our bank, if you're not already in some of the products and services that we offer to help uh, further protect that, then let's get you into one of those. If you're interested, let's get you into that. Um, and so they were being very proactive about that. But a customer can just call and say, tell me, tell me what your what your system is, what your reasoning is, tell me how my money is protected, and the bank is going to walk you through that. And I'll say the other piece of that, uh, you know, the regulatory agencies, uh, they focused a lot on capital, capital, capital. Uh, Liquidity has always been important, but I think much like, um, if, to use a sports analogy, when the football game's not going so well and you go in for halftime, the coach, the coach makes adjustments. Uh, to the plays and things like that. So I think you'll see banking regulators do that same thing, and they're going to start looking um, just as much at liquidity as they do capital. Um, So I think you'll see that adjustment there. Congress is holding hearing after hearing. They're doing um, uh, an investigation of, you know, what happened here with, like I said earlier, the supervisory lapses, uh, what the other circumstances was. So you're seeing this. Uh, people are going to be coming at this from all different angles to make sure that our bank customers are covered and safe. You know, I, the banks that I bank with, uh, you know, i got $10 in each one of them. The banks that I bank with, uh, <laughs> the uh, 
uh, you think I'm kidding. But the banks that I bank with, uh, it's all about personal relationship. It's about being able to walk in and people that live in your community, people that you you know have relationships with that you see at the ballpark, mm-hmm. you might go to church with, you might run into them at the local store. Just seeing those individuals, you might even have their cell phone if you're on a really good relationship. To me, that's a lot of it. Bank with a bank where you've got that personal relationship to where you know that that person doesn't want to never see you eyeball to eyeball because something has caught everybody off guard. Let me ask you, on the national level, with the uh, instability you know, of the stock market and of the interest rates and, you know, the Federal Reserve doing what it's doing, all those things that are, you know, like way up here in the cloud that is above maybe some people's head, how do you how do you deal with that as it affects the Arkansas banks? And then you got people that say, take your money out, put it in gold. You know, the banks aren't safe and you can't, you know, you can't trust the banks and the changing currency. You got China coming on board that's trying to, you know, become a, a power player when it comes to the strength of the U.S. dollar. And and all this, I mean, very convoluted to the average guy that just says, I want to put my $500 in the bank and know it's safe, and I don't know whether I should go the gold route or any of those other things. You got ESG sure. in there. You know, you got the investment ESG, what we did politically during the session as far as investments mm-hmm. that, you know, the Treasury can invest in or not. Just talk about that whole convoluted mess, if you mm-hmm. would, and try to sort out some of those things that are issues to people that we hear. Sure. Well, and I'll start out by saying, um, you know, the U.S. has one of the strongest banking and economic um, industries that in the world, in the world. I mean, we're the world hegemon for a reason. Uh, We are our our economic and banking sectors. I mean, we are the strongest in the world. Um, And I know there's a lot of talk about um, China and the American dollar. But when with the whole world looking in, they know that we have the most sound and the strongest financial system. And I don't see any way in the world why they would turn to China and say, actually, um, this communist regime, we want to put our money over here where you where you track everything and you tell your citizens what they are going to do and what they're not going to do and and things like that. And as far as putting your money into gold, um, while I understand that people do that as an investment, but taking all your money out of the bank and putting it into precious metals, you can't pay your light bill with that. Um, you can't make any kind of con- transactions with that as far as the everyday day-to-day needs. And so if you've only got $500 in the bank, um, you, you need that there. And if you do get into trouble, if you've got your $500 in the bank and you do get into trouble and you need to, you know, you accidentally overdraw your account, the bank's going to be there to cover that for you and take care of you. So, you know, I, I just can't stress enough. We literally have the, the strongest um, economic and financial backing in the world. And I think a lot of um, political puffery at the federal level happens, and that tends to trickle down. And um, it can cause problems. It can, it can definitely cause problems, and it's confusing. Um, but to look through all that, you just have to go back to the, the basics, and we are the strongest economy in the world. Can you hold over through the break? I've got one other question. You got? To, can you hold over? Sure. Okay. So That's when we come name. back, I've got I've got Lori Tudor, who's the uh, uh, director of R dot on, and she's going to come in right behind you. But the question I want you to think about, get ready to answer is uh, for about a minute, minute and a half. I want you to talk about ESG investments, and let's talk sure. about that. And then one other question, and we'll wrap it up after we come back. This is Dave Ellswick show. This is State Senator Kim Hammer filling in. We'll be back after the news. 
This is Kim Hammer filling in for Dave Oswick, who's off on a break right now. We've got Lori Tudor, who's the director of the Arkansas Department of Transportation. And Lori kind of laid the groundwork before. But the camera system that will be coming in, can you just give a little bit of a, a brief understanding of how it will work? I kind of used the analogy a while ago. And also when it will come into place. And then I'll give you a couple other questions to answer after that. Okay, sounds good. So these cameras, this, this technology, will set the cameras will be set up inside the work zone where the lanes are constricted with uh, concrete barriers and that type of thing and workers are present. And these cameras will be set up and uh, they'll be programmed that if a car is going over like 10 miles over the posted speed limit, it will clock the speed of that car and take a picture of the car and its license plate. And then that picture, along with the information about the car, the license plate number, will be transmitted downstream to an officer outside of the work zone. And then that officer can then pull that car over and proceed with the traffic stop. These, ca these cameras do not retain the data. They just transmit it to the officer downstream. And if the officer does make the traffic stop using that picture, that picture will be copied and attached to the citation or the warning. All the other pictures that are made, because as you can imagine, there will probably be several pictures being taken throughout the enforcement event, but they aren't retained and they're not used in any way. They're not, um, some of the concern is that these pictures would be retained and you would get a, you would get a citation in the mail. That is not what this does. All this does is take the place of that officer that was inside the work zone, the one you mentioned on top of the bridge with the LIDAR or the radar, and then was radioing up ahead to the, to the officer downstream. So it's just a, it's just a tool in the toolbox to uh, help supplement our law enforcement workforce. It takes the place of one officer or two officers inside the work zone but the officer present is still in is still downstream and making the traffic stop and it, it the citation or warning is given to the actual driver it's not based on the vehicle owner the ability for the system to accurately transmit to the officer waiting downstream so that they get the right car uh, and then if a ticket is issued what's the proof or the evidence that's given to the driver in the event they want to appeal it to the court They'll get that picture and they'll get a copy of their citation, and then they can take it to court if they if they want to appeal it or want to um, defend themselves. And so it's the same process that's already in place, um, and the officer would have to come. I believe in the, with the court proceeding, the officer that issues the citation has to be in court with that person. Is that correct? That's my understanding, which yes. is in some ways a real disadvantage to the officer because a lot of times that's done on their personal time without pay uh, but that's another subject for another day but go ahead yes but anyway this the same the same rules will apply as they apply today as far as a is trying to dispute a traffic um, citation so nothing will change the only thing is is that is that picture will be proof of the officer's um, um, incentive to stop that vehicle and issue that citation so it might be that well the proof you know a picture says a thousand words so i don't know it's kind of hard to I deny that that's my know. car 
the, uh, the let me ask you on the um, the number of accidents because I know y'all, especially down there in I thirty in in Saline County, y'all have intensified the presence of law enforcement. Has it reduced the number of accidents? The number of um, incidences within the barriers yes it has but interesting enough um what's really reduced is the number of commercial motor vehicle or 18 wheeler accidents in that work zone when we increased enforcement in that work zone that was the result of our increased enforcement overall crashes didn't change as much as the, what the CMV crashes changed. It went, they went down 24%. And the theory is it wasn't because the commercial motor vehicles were speeding through the work zone. It was the fact that the increased enforcement changed passenger vehicle behavior. And when they started driving uh, the speed limit and not as erratically or as aggressively, that, that resulted in less uh, commercial motor vehicle crashes because as we all know those those types of vehicles have no room to recover if there anything goes wrong and they're in that restricted construction zone they're in someone cuts them off or stops suddenly in front of them they have a hard time react you know they're the, the size of the vehicle and just the physics of that vehicle make it very difficult for them so the result is very encouraging because you can, if you have just one minor crash, whether there's a fatality or injury or not, we all know that it can mean two hours or more of backup and delay for all the for everyone driving through that area. And then on top of that is the, the increased um, uh, possible of secondary crashes because of that big delay in that in that work zone um, backup of traffic. So it's just going to make our work zones that much safer by changing driver behavior through our work zones. We're very, very uh, encouraged by this legislation, very thankful for it. The Arkansas General Contractors Association, the Arkansas Asphalt Pavement Association, Arkansas Highway Police, RDOT, we're all very grateful to have this additional tool in our toolbox to um, to make our work zones safer. Okay. I am going to have to wrap it up because I've got an extra guest that's called in, Senator Brian King, and we're going to talk about the concealed carry permit bill that he ran. Uh, but just to wrap this up, one of the intent is that it would help reduce the number of accidents in those zones so that the traffic can flow freely, also reducing the number of deaths of uh, construction workers that are in those zones. Lori, I appreciate you being on. I know you got a busy day, and thank you for taking time out to be on the Dave Ellswick Show and just uh, educate, us, educate us a little bit about that bill. And that's not going to take place till like, August is when it will finally be up and running, correct? That's Give or take. correct. Okay. That's correct. Thank okay. you. All right, thanks. All right, next up, I've got a, uh, a guest, Brian King, Senator Brian King. He and I served. He was in the Senate way back when. I was in the House, so I've known him for a while. And uh, Senator King, thank you for joining me on the Dave Ellswick Show today. Hey, good to be on, Dave. All right. Hey, uh, let's. I've, I've got about six minutes, maybe, and I wanted to get you on to talk about a bill that you sponsored dealing with the concealed uh, carry permit. Just talk about it uh, for a minute and the the framework of what the bill's intended to do and when it goes in effect. Yeah, I mean, it's supposed to go in effect. Uh, I, I can't remember if it has mercy clause on it or not. Be honest with you, but uh, it's actually basically in effect now. 
2013, getting out this past the constitutional carry bill, that led to the open carry debate, and we went through that with uh, Gary Epperson, Tim Loggins, and the the uh, 746 guys, and gun owners of Arkansas guys, which is a great bunch of guys that look out for Second Amendment, truly do have their own uh, beliefs, not necessarily for money. Uh, but anyway, uh, so that bill got passed. We had this big debate and kind of confusion about are we a constitutional carry state, permanent must carry or not. And we moved to uh, last session, which I wasn't there. There was a resolution passed that said we were. You know, it was just a voice resolution. So this just clarified it. So that way people should know, uh, you know, concealed carry permit. If you want to go ahead and get that, uh, that is fine. And, you know, use it to carry in other states that recognize that. Uh, but you do not need a permit. Now, this bill was written in the concealed carry statute. So this should not. I don't think anybody should think it does is you know get on the enhanced carry statutes that, that were passed and those provisions so this is just basically for those taking a concealed carry class which you know they can most certainly still do but this just says if you're a legal law-abiding citizen and in those things uh, that are not in those places and areas of the law that's not already written in like enhanced carry then in those situations then you have a constitutional carry right to carry the uh, I'm looking at the bill now. I pulled it up. It is House or Senate Bill uh, 480, I think. Without me getting to it real quick, I think it's Senate Bill or Act Number 777. I'll check that in a minute. Uh, and again, yeah, you can go up to W. Right on that, you kept, yeah, I kept searching for it and it didn't come up. But yeah, it is Act. I looked at my profile and it said Act 777. So yeah, okay. Uh, the number of perfection. So you picked a good number there, man. You got the you got the number yeah. of perfection. Uh, you can go up to www.arcleg.state.ar.us, and you can uh, search Senator Brian King, or you can just pull up uh, what is uh, Senate Bill 480. It'll take you straight to it. It does not have an emergency clause on it, so that means it'll go into effect uh, July 1st, I think it is. Um, yeah. yeah. The, um, this this does not, as you mentioned, touch the, or touch the enhanced carry which if you want to be able to go into certain buildings, uh, you would have to have the enhanced carry in order to take your weapon into uh, like uh, like the Capitol or others. Am I right on that or am I wrong on that? Straighten me out. That's, that's what we're saying. It's written in the concealed carry. It's actually in effect now because the resolution was passed in 2013. This just clarified it because I think there was still a lot of confusion. There was actually a court case that went through the court case that upheld the 2013 bill, the, the resolution and said we were a constitutional care state. Uh, so this actually is in effect right now. This this just this just cleared the air because yeah. you have you know some people out there saying you know are we, are we or are we not? I mean there was just still this confusion. So uh, this is actually in effect now, and it's up been held up in court. We just decided uh, to work with Gary Epperson and Tim Loggins and those guys to say you know we just need to clarify it. Okay. Yeah. And uh, I remember it, there was a lot of confusion around this. So, you know, kudos to you to uh, clear it up and just make clear what was already known. But this just brings clarity to it. Former AG Leslie Rutledge has put out that uh, attorney general's opinion about it. And so this is this is good in that it clears it up and it and lets them know that you can conceal carry or not conceal carry. You got you got your right under the Second Amendment. Right. Anything you want to add to that before I let you go? No, just I think in the next sessions we need to look at the uh, you know self protection clauses about outlining some things with people to allow them to uh, have their self protection rights. I think that uh, 
You know, I mean, the enhanced carry, I even hate calling it that, really. I mean, I think that that needs to be looked at, too. I mean, we need to keep looking away at, at these situations that I feel like, you know, that uh, we have a right for self-protection and, you know, just kind of keep looking at the debate and getting it out there. I agree. All right, Senator Brian King, thanks for taking time out for calling in to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm Kim Hammerstate, Senator, filling in for Dave. That was Senator Brian King. Uh, look forward to you being back this next time around to work on those issues, continue to press toward making sure our Second Amendment rights are taken care of. We'll take a break. When we come back, Cody Hyland, Director of the Republican Party of Arkansas, is joining me in studio. Hi, this is Kim Hammer, state senator, filling in for Dave Ellswick, who's off on a little bit of a R&R weekend. I'm not sure when he'll be back. Aaron, he'll be back in the studio tomorrow? Yes, he'll be back tomorrow. All right, very good. So you'll get the professional back in tomorrow uh, that'll handle the Dave Ellswick show. But today, we've had a long list of guests. If you're just tuning in, uh, just to let you know, we had Senator John Payton in talking about the tire bill, had Senator Justin Boyd in talking about some of his legislation, pro tem, Senator Bart Hester was in talking about the session. Senator Missy Irvin was talking about the uh, about women's sport and about the intrusion of men into women's sport. Had uh, Senator Josh Bryan on. He was talking about uh, a bill that he ran regarding uh, legalization of recreational marijuana. Uh, we may have a call in here in a little bit. I'm just waiting to get the confirmation uh, from the treasurer of the state of Arkansas to hear from him and from his office. And then we had Lori Trogdon in uh, for the uh, State Banking Association. Lori Tudor with the Arkansas RDOT talking about the camera system. And uh, just because I'm very familiar with that bill, just want you to know this is not the nose under the uh, tent, the camel's nose under the tent. This is a, a process that is currently being used. It just employs troopers or other law enforcement that now will be able to be out uh, doing other things more valuable with their time, but yet it's important to make sure that within the construction zones, and those will be clearly marked, by the way. That's one thing Lori didn't get a chance to say is that you will know if you're entering a construction zone where cameras are going to be utilized because it will be clearly marked so that you have fair warning going into that, and then the trooper will be on the other side of the construction zone because, uh, Cody, the worst thing can happen is for a trooper law enforcement to stop somebody in the middle of a construction zone. You can just get ready for a two- to four-hour backup yeah, once gets, that happens. Yeah, it gets pretty tough, man. Yep, and now we have the distinguished uh, uh, chairman of the Republican Party, Cody Highland, who has joined me in studio. Mm-hmm. So, Cody, thank you for being here for, on the Dave Ellswick Show today. Right. Glad to be here, Ken. Thanks. All right. Let's talk about a list of things that are of interest, I think, maybe to some folks. Uh, let me start, first of all, by just uh, this is your first time uh, dealing with the General Assembly uh, session. Am I right on that? Well, as, as chairman of the party, yeah, absolutely. As chairman yes. of the party, yeah. yeah. And right. Certainly, when, when I was the elected prosecutor, we were down quite a bit and fought some of those public safety battles yeah. for a long time. Yeah. So, you, were, yeah. you were coming in on the other side. I was. So. I was. All right. Well, now you're on this side. So give me your assessment of uh, this session. Uh, as mentioned a while ago, the fewest number of bills that were filed since 19. 19- well, you just stole my thunder. Uh, go ahead. Go ahead. I, I, I just- I, I'll tell you, you know, if you look at the initial statute books, uh, the introduction of that, I think it was by Albert Pike. I'm not sure who wrote the introduction, but he talked about, how important it is to limit the number of bills. And that was in 18-whatever-it-was, 76, when it, uh, whatever it was, uh, whenever it was written. And, you know, again, I think that's, that says a lot. I think that it's important that we have more time to deliberate and think through legislation. As you know, uh, legislation can have a butterfly effect. You know, you've got a bill that affects somebody in Searcy County that a state rep brings, and it uh, – 
is purported to fix a problem. Maybe it does, but it kind of has a ripple effect and that uh, butterfly effect, that the unintended consequences. You know, uh, bills have the stated intended consequence, the <laughs> the unstated intended consequence, and then the unintended consequence. And so I think less bills is probably a really good thing. Yeah, well, I'm guilty because I ran quite a few bills, but most of my bills I like to get worked up during the interim uh, where you have time to bring all the parties to the table. It's all about deliberation, right? Yeah. Time to go go through it, yeah. yeah. And that, and that's what will happen, you know, in the off off season now, mm-hmm. uh, which I'm in my last term. I'm termed out after this. I've got one more general session, so I'll have the opportunity to, uh, during the interim, work up what would be my next legislative package. But you can get a lot done during the interim where – uh, you might introduce a bill, a concept to get people around the table, have a lot of that. So when you get to the session, yeah. you can you can that's get it. those things passed through, that's it. having had a lot of that done. So what would be your overall assessment or uh, view of the session that we just had? Well, I think it was pretty productive. Uh, obviously, from Governor Sanders' perspective, I mean, she campaigned on, and many of our state senators and state representatives campaigned on education reform. Uh, public safety and uh, income tax cuts and center all all three of those uh, made it through it was i would characterize that agenda as very aggressive very ambitious uh, but they were able to get that done and so i I, uh, you know of course obviously public safety is something that's near and dear to my heart and something that we've needed for a long time uh, uh, trying to make sure that we have a victim-centric, a community-centric viewpoint on our legislation rather than a a defendant, a criminal-centric. And I think you had that for the first time in a long time. Uh, You combine the tightening of parole with uh, a 3,000-bed prison, and I know that that's not flashy. Nobody likes to talk about that, uh, think about that. But at the end of the day, we have roughly a 2,000-bed backup with our state uh, prisoners and our county jails. And, uh, I mean, you you name the organization, they were behind this bill. I mean, obviously the Sheriff's Association, Prosecutors Association, uh, Chiefs of Police, uh, the Chamber of Commerce uh, was supportive, uh, the county judges, because this is having an impact on their budget as well because uh, uh, they've got to to house these folks. Uh, And then you have the impact on misdemeanor justice, and we don't talk about that a lot. But, uh, you know, district court, if, if you've got a county jail that's full of state prisoners and you've got somebody that's convicted of a misdemeanor, you don't have any place to put those folks. And so I think uh, this is a very practical, rubber-meets-the-road uh, uh, piece of legislation that will I think you can work on it going forward. I think there are other areas that we can tighten, uh, but you can't tighten too much on parole until you get the bed space. And so I, I, I was excited to see it. The uh, other side of that, too, also, because uh, I had several meetings with the juvenile judges, is things along the lines of dealing with the juvenile because um, if we can catch them young and put them in a program like C-STEP or over in the Youth Challenge or uh, some other program that would eventually keep them out of long-term yeah. prison, uh, I think we, unfortunately, as you watch the news and you see the crimes that are being committed, the gun crimes especially, uh, by uh, younger individuals, 14, yeah. 15, uh, you know, some here in the state, but you look around, uh, we find that it's, you know, juveniles are acting like adults. They are. And and unfortunately, that's that's filling up the prison as well. Yeah, you know, uh, 
the the whole purpose of the juvenile system is re, you know rehabilitation, trying to turn these folks around before these young kids before it's too late. Uh, Judge Troy Braswell in the 20th Judicial District uh, does a fantastic job uh, up there with it. But I'm telling you, it's a tough task, Senator. These, uh, you know, sometimes we we have a tendency to look to government for all of our answers. And the truth is, when you, when you look in juvenile court and you see these kids there. You know, they're sitting there with their aunt and their uncle or their grandma or their grandpa uh, because mom and dad have checked out to satiate whatever immediate gratification mm-hmm. is driving them at the time. Usually it's drugs. And, and these kids, Senator, are young or they're, they're, they're lonely, they're angry, and they're bitter. And uh, those, those young kids are going to be the criminal of tomorrow. And so whatever we can do to help, uh, you know, turn that around is, is something we need to invest in. And so I'm, you know, that's a... Criminal justice is not a a one-legged stool. I mean, there are multiple legs to it, and it's, you know, the first-time offenders, the the diversionary programs, there's the juvenile justice aspect of it, but then the the leg that we just addressed, which has not been addressed for a long time, is the the repeat and the violent offenders. And I think that's what, uh, I think when we talk about moving the needle for our public, for our communities, I think we did that this session. And you hit on two things. Uh, you know, when I go over to the Youth Challenge or I go over to C-STEP, and just so people know, if you don't know the difference, C-STEP is for kids that have been adjudicated. They're in the legal system. This is kind of like, hey, you got one shot before we send you up. Uh, this is our opportunity to break that cycle. Youth Challenge is for kids that have not been adjudicated that are uh, in the program, and they have the opportunity to go on and go to the military if they're in the Youth, in the, uh, youth Challenge program. The one thing that is that is blatantly present in each one of those environments is the absence of the male role model yeah. in the home. And as a result of that, there's that lack of leadership, that lack of accountability, that lack of guidance. And we're dealing with a generation of kids that are where they are because their dads are not where they're supposed to be. we got to take a break, but we're going to pick up on that when we come back. You're listening to the Dave Ellswick Show. I'm State Senator Kim Hammer filling in for Dave, who's off on R&R. He'll be back here tomorrow. I've got Cody Highland, director of the Arkansas Republican Party, chairman of the Arkansas Republican Party. We're going to come back and continue our conversation after the break. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 